The following is a KPV MediaWorks production. Choose your fighter. And we're on. Welcome to another episode of KPV Cast, guys. With me today, who we have with me right now is Afrodynamic. KPV Afrodynamic, to be exact. The voice of KPB. Good at good evening, sir. How the heck are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, brother. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good, man. Having a nice fun night here with AJ, Steve, and Retro back there. Amen. Exactly. Amen. And here we go, man. First of all, like I always ask everybody, how did you start off in the you know, in the competitive scene? Or actually, how did you start off, you know, with video games? How did I start with video games? It honest to God all goes back to and this is something that you and Prap are going to remember. It all comes back to all those afternoons I spent at Nathan's. Mm-hmm. Like, just, like, literally being around it, being around, like, that cacophony. Like, that happens at Nathan's. Because what some people may not know is that the Yonkers actually is, well, rather, it was the site of the third Nathan's ever built yes. within New York. And when I was a kid... I would love going to Nathan's. That was like one of the things, like that was one of the carrots on the stick that my parents would hold in front of me whenever they wanted me to do good in school. So I would do that. And then years later, I would actually work in the game room at Nathan's. And it is a, it is a humbling experience to have done that because on one hand, being around everybody, being around like just again, all that chaos, it's oddly comforting. But the strangest thing is when the games get turned off and you're there for like that last 30 minutes or so when before everybody leaves. Like that is the strangest and most haunting thing I could ever think of. Just like you're used to always being there. Cause like, let's be honest, every time you would go to Nathan's, all you could hear is the games. And it, like none of it made sense. But the second that noise isn't there and you're in that giant room, Suddenly, you're wondering how many people are like, you know, what's going, you know, what's going on, and being around that, it was just amazing. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, we may not, we may not have gotten the hot dog eating contest up there, but we did have a nice, sizable arcade. Amen to that. And like, and you know, like people say, you actually worked there. Yes. And you just explained something very eerie, which I haven't asked a lot of the people who have been on the show. And then again, I don't think any of them stayed in there until it closed down because a lot of them were twenty four seven. The fact that you go from this hot, just, you know, just crazy room full of noise, blasting you from each section. Everything is just nice and quiet now. Yeah. It's ridiculously again, eerie, isn't it's it? It's unsettling. All right. I'll be straight up with you. Like, it's like every, like, Stanley Kubrick movie, every H.R. Geiger thing you ever looked at in the museum or whatnot, all of it right there. Just like, it's that haunting, creepy silence. And that's the, t- it's honestly got like the first couple of days that it happened because I worked there five days out of the week, and naturally, everybody has to work Friday and Saturday. That's just a given. Not a big issue, but again, when I was working there, when it was still in the game room, I worked, the closing time on the weekdays was midnight. Fair enough. Closing time on Friday and Saturday, it was two in the morning. Doesn't matter what you do during the day, like spend six hours in a no arcade and then walk out at two in the morning. Whatever happens from 1.30 to 2 a.m. when you get out that door is going to stay with you. And that silence, that absolute nothing sound, 
haunts me to this day. How did you get that job, and what's the fun part about working for, with, um, at an arcade? I got that job mainly because after I graduated out of high school, I wanted to do something because I'm one of those people as laid back as I appear. I have to be involved in something. So with me, I've been working since I was 12 years old, and I'm 36 now. So after I got out of high school, I was yeah, I was like, you know working in my mother's daycare for a long time, and when that eventually like you no know, went away, I still needed to do something. So I was looking around and. I figured, you know what, screw it, let me throw caution to the wind and let me just try working at Nathan's. Let me just fill out an application and see what they say and everything. And lo and behold, they actually hired me, much to my surprise, but again, at the same time, much to my delight. Because to answer the second question you asked, the best thing about working at Nathan's is the change machine. Because when I was working at Nathan's, basically depending on how long you work there, you started with $100 in your pouch. Because I was working as one of the change attendants. I didn't, like, manage any of the machines. That's all Greek to me. I have no idea what goes on underneath, like, the touchpad and all that stuff. After, like, you know, you put the quarter in, hit start, that is the extent of my knowledge of how games work, at least as far as arcade games work. But the thing that I absolutely love is the fact that so many people, so many people, did not remember that when you put a $20 bill in the change machine, it gives you a $10 drop and then another $10 drop. You have no idea how many days and nights I actually, you know, broke even or broke further because so many people forgot about that second $10 drop. I know that's a terrible thing to admit, but look, to the citizens of Yonkers and the greater Westchester area, y'all should have been paying attention, okay? That's just more money in my pocket. What's the statute of limitations on that? No idea. And I truthfully do not care because I spent all of that money. Right? And they're not getting any of it back. And you know what? Before we get to what's the worst part of working for an arcade. Oh, yeah. You know, not many people know. Parappa probably knows. But I believe you hold the record over there for the Fist of the North Star game with the actual punching yes, bag. Yes, the fighting not mania. The, yeah, not the arcade one with the characters moving. It's exactly. The not, one the fighting, the- yeah, not the fighting game that Arx has put together, but there was an actual, like, for everybody out there who's, like, you know, big in, like, the, I guess, like, the eccentric and kind of, like, you no know, really, like, classic and retro games, there used to be a Fist of the North Star. Not necessarily a fighting game, but it was just, again, it was kind of like, in the damnedest sense, it was a rhythm game, to be perfectly honest. Yes. It was a rhythm game for your fist, not for your feet. And when I saw it the first time, like, and naturally, like, I love Fist of the North Star, so I'm going to gravitate towards this. And the longer and longer I worked there, because I worked there for about two and a half years, the longer I was there, the more and more I played the game. And it just got to the point where, again, as a rhythm game, eventually you memorize the rhythm. And it just got to the point where whenever I was on break or whenever I, like, just had a little moment where it was kind of dead in there. If I wasn't playing Soul Calibur or SVC Chaos, I was on the Fight Mania game. And yes, like one of the like feathers in my cap, so to speak, is that over the course of two and a half years, it was not a quick process, trust me. Over the course of two and a half years, I got my name or like my tag back then, which was NYK, on every course in that game. Again, like I said, it was, it was like, you know, exhausting, but at the same time, it was like super, super relieving because, again, I love Fist of the North Star. And it was funny because there was one moment where if you ever wanted to see what, like, you know, the dichotomy of Afrodynamic was, 
there was a day where I was doing this on my break. So nobody could really ask me for anything because I didn't have my pouch on. I was just some dude in a red shirt. And I was playing that. And I was playing it on survival mode, which technically happens to be Ray's course. And there were a pair of brothers who came up and they were watching me play. Older brother's on my right side. Younger brother's on my left side. Older brother is roughly about my height. Younger brother is like, no, down to the lowest path. And they're watching me like, again, just go ballistic on this thing. And the older brother, I forget what it was that he asked me, but me just being like the complete nut that I am. I gave him like this real stone cold, honest to God, like, no, something out of like, no, the most hardcore anime looking face when he asked me this question. And I can clearly see how visibly shaken up he was. Little brother asked a follow-up question. Literally all smiles when I, I turned around to look to him. Because, again, I didn't want to scare the little kid. I didn't, like, I was not my intention to scare the crap out of the older brother. It just happened that way. Little kid, I didn't want to scare him off. I wanted to encourage him to play. So, again, like I said, it was, like, a really, really weird dichotomy on that particular game. But, yeah, absolutely adore the game. And that isn't the only game that I have my name, like, on all of the, like, top three. The other was real about Fatal Fury Special. And, like, you were around in the neighborhood back then, and you know at least one particular story in regards to that game and me getting my name on all the lists. But, yeah, I absolutely adore that game. Like, that was, at the time, like, for at least a good stretch, like, that was my favorite arcade game. I played that game religiously, Fatal Fury Special, man. Or rather, real about Fatal Fury Special. Fatal Fury Special is the remix of Fatal Fury 1 that they had on the SNES. Yeah, for anybody who may be asking, hmm, I wonder what the story is. He just threw some kid in the garbage bag. One-handed. Uh, just want to throw that out there. Because the kid messed him up from putting his initials, I think I remember. And he just, you know, Mike picked him up, threw him in there, and just left about his day. Yeah. like And, like, to put this into, a, like, visual perspective, for anybody who wants to know what it looked like, Kazuya's left-sided grab, that's what it was. The one where he literally grabs him by the waist, picks him up, and drops him. That's what I did because that's how pissed off I was. Like, and it wasn't some random kid. It was like the neighborhood troll. We all hated that kid. Terrell. I remember yes. his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, so, like, dude, seriously, like, you throw somebody face first, one-handed into a garbage can, you're going to remember their name. All right. <laughs> What's the worst thing about working at an arcade? Worst thing about working at an arcade are the mothers. And I'm not saying that to be, like, mean or anything, because trust me, I've dealt with some really, really dumbass fathers working at Nathan's. But mothers are always a little bit more, like, terse for the simple fact that they have a righteous fervor to make sure that their kids are either being taken care of or having a good time. They don't want their kids to be cheated. They don't want their children to feel as though, like, they've gotten the you know, short end of the stick or anything like that. But there was this one mother in particular, and she just did not grasp the fact that the game that her son was trying to play required three quarters. The kid just walked in there, put a quarter in the game, and naturally nothing happened. So she's like, you know, yelling at me because I was the closest attendant there. And it was a repetitive thing. It happened like five times in one day. And it got to the point where, like, she came up to me and she said, I hate to bother you. And this is where that whole noise in an arcade comes into play because at the top of my lungs, I yelled, no, you don't, because if you did, you'd stop doing it, all right? But because of all the noise in the arcade, she never heard me. But again, like, that, that is the most irritating thing. 
The fact that people will literally walk in there, they won't pay attention to how much a game may cost, and then they'll just put a quarter in there thinking that, like, again, well, it was a quarter for me whenever I was playing games back in the day. Like, no, they were doing their whole, like, no, marathon on Miss Pac-Man or Space Invaders and whatnot. You come into an arcade now, or at least back then, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, when things were kind of, like, dying down. Yeah, look, there are going to be games that are, you know, 25 cents. There are going to be games that are 50 cents. Hell, you'll come across a game that costs a dollar. You got to put more than one quarter in the damn thing. Plain and simple. And, like, again, like, that was the one part that always, always aggravated me. Well, you're like me, man. We, uh, in the mid-90s, early 90s, late Mm -hmm. 2000s. Excuse me, not late 2000s, early 2000s. Yeah. Right when arcades were about to die. You experienced arcades. Do you remember the first arcade, the, the first time you laid eyes on an arcade machine? What was that? What was that experience like? Or was it when your parents took you to Nathan's like you had said earlier? It's kind of a cross thing because like the first time that I was ever like in an arcade, it was Nathan's. But the first time I ever saw an arcade game that like spoke to me, it was X-Men vs. Street Fighter. And coincidentally, it wasn't at Nathan's. It was at the Cross County Multiplex. Mm-hmm. And I just remember seeing that because like at that time, like honest to God, what were the two biggest things for any like, no, I think what was like at the time, eight-year-old kid could see on television. You're either playing Street Fighter 2 or you're watching the X-Men cartoon on Fox. And I'm walking away from, I think we stepped out of Jurassic Park or something like that. It may have been like Jurassic Park or some other like big blockbuster movie at the time when I was young. And out of the corner of my eye, I see that like now iconic picture of Ryu and Cyclops shaking hands. I immediately let go of my mother's hand, ventured over one of the many times that I have, no quote unquote, gotten lost whenever we've been out. But again, seriously, all the change that I had in my pocket, I like constantly, I dumped into that machine. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but I was still playing the game nonstop. In terms of like the first time I ever saw an arcade game and we clicked, despite like all the time and effort that I put into Real About Fade Free Special, the first game that I ever like, everything made sense. Coincidentally, it was Marvel vs. Capcom 1. Like, whenever I played that game, because my, no, my main team was always going to be a combination of Jin, Captain Commando, and Stratahiria. Like, everybody else, like, they were fine and all that stuff, but like, those are the three characters that spoke out to me the most, because I hadn't seen them before. I was like too young to ever remember Strider. Right. I never saw Captain Mandro, and, like, I'll be good and damned if I ever think about, like, no, coming across Cyberbots when I was playing old games back in the day. So seeing those three, those were the only ones that I didn't recognize, and I loved using those three characters because they were basically, like, prime examples of the archetypes, at least in Marvel's Capcom 1. You had Strider, who was, like, the combo crazy guy. He was, like, speed, couldn't take a hit to save his life, but, again, like, you can get in and you can get out with him. Captain Commander, he was like your middle of the ground. And to this day, I'm not going to lie, Captain Corridor is still my favorite special move in like any fighting game, period. And to be perfectly fair, if you can listen to Captain Commando's theme from Marvel vs. Capcom 1 and not like just again, raise your fist in the air and triumph, you're lying to yourself, okay? I'm going to say that right now. And as far as Jin, two words, Blodia Vulcan. Like, like honestly, that was the one move everybody loved doing because again like even if you were like a dedicated player you were just a button masher you get bloody vulcan out you're getting that whole score all right plain and simple but like that was like the real first time that i like saw a game and it reached out to me like something about that game 
finally got my attention beyond the superficial level of like it being noisy and bright. That was the first game that again it like grabbed my attention because of the properties in it because it again like it relate. You know, there was something in it that I related to because of what was being played at the time. God, it was good days. Westchester County. I live in Westchester County. Parappa lives in Westchester County. Rodney lived in Westchester County. Although I don't think Rodney lived during those times, during the uh, early 90s and, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. But Mm -hmm. the arcade scene in in Westchester County, there was the Playland Arcade. Yeah, That was huge. Dragon's Den. A lot of people (sighs) from the city went to Dragon's Den. You know, you go across Broadway, you have Giovanni's, you have... Uh, Casa Filipina. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that God lady always, you, God Virginia. bless her, she always had the latest games. Even <sighs> obscure game guys like uh, Star Gladiator, and I believe she had Tech Romance. She had there. Plasma Sword. She didn't have Star Gladiator. Uh, okay. Well, it's the same game. Might as well be the like, same so, game. Like, no, Plasma yeah. Sword was a sequel. Yeah, and then the, um, the little pool Romancer hall well. right there had... Back like, Pocket. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was arcade heaven. Yeah, explain, honestly, it was. Explain to everybody having so many arcade, and it wasn't just Street Fighter too. No, like we already said it was a whole bunch of obscure Again, fighting like games said, that you would otherwise never see anywhere else. Like it's crazy because I remember not too long ago reading about how Neo Geo and SNK kind of got like their foothold in Latin America, and it's primarily because of the fact that again, you got more bang for your buck. You can get like three, four different games in one cabinet. Everything costs a quarter, and majority of the time, everything was different. There would be, I remember like the like first time that I was ever introduced to an SNK cabinet, it actually wasn't a Casa Filipina and it wasn't on Lights Out Broadway. It was actually at a Jamaican spot around the corner from Hudson Street. And there, like they had KOF 94. Like it was the first time I was ever introduced to KOF. But it was more importantly, it was the first time I was ever introduced to an SNK cabinet. And the fact that, again, there was SNO, uh, what was it, KOF 94, there was, no, Strikers 1945, there was Bubble Bobble, obviously. Like, every SNK, at one point or another, every SNK cabinet that you came across in, like, the early 90s had Bubble Bobble in it. And the other one was the soccer game. I forget what the name it was. I, I the, know what game you're talking exactly. about. And it was the one, coincidentally, uh, that SNK, had. I think it was just called SNK Cup or something like something that. Something like that. But like, the reason why I remembered so much was because like if you played well enough, like if you got, I think well, it was like no less than two goals. Like if you played, I think it was like three or four games within like the tournament, so to speak, and you got like 2-0 on like everything up to the semifinals, you would end up playing the SNK team. And the SNK team was just full of KOF players, no KOF <laughs> characters. So, like, I remember that and, like, just the beauty of being able to, like, go there. And it didn't matter what itch you had at that day. There was always going to be something to do at an SNK cabinet. So, that was one of the main things that made Westchester, particularly South Yonkers, so great for the arcade scene. Because you had, you know, that Jamaican store. And mind you, like, that Jamaican store was, like, just one place mm-hmm. near the square that had, like, a bunch of different games. Because there was, like, the Jamaican spot there. It was Chow Chow's Kitchen. Like, that was, like, everybody that grew up way back in them days. Everybody knows about Chow Chow's Kitchen. There were all the spots on, and I know this is kind of like a taboo thing to bring up. There were all the spots on New Main Street and subsequently right next to School Street, which is the one place everybody told you don't go Mm -hmm. in Yonkers back in those days. I didn't listen. All right? I'm just going to throw that out there. And, yeah, so you had that, you had the back pocket, and, like, depending on how far, or depending on, like, how far into, like, Little Mexico you wanted to go into, 
which like for anybody that's asking, Little Mexico is basically what we call New Main Street back then for I'm going to let you put the two and two together as to why, okay? You know, you can go there and like you can go a little bit further and I think it was the one spot next to the Orza Bakery mm-hmm. and again, absolutely adore that place. That was the only place besides Nathan's that I ever got to play SNL Capcom vs. SNK 1. Every other place, again, like, they simply didn't have it. Nobody wanted to bring it in. And I can understand why. Like I said, the business was kind of, like, on its way out. But places like that, they didn't give a damn. Like I said, they just wanted to have something there, like, just to kill time. Between you getting drunk, you getting on the dance floor, you maybe shooting pool. And you just had that. And, again, like I said, I loved those days, man. Like, that introduced me to a bunch of people like hell that's how you and i met you know and it just again it introduced me to a bunch of people it taught me a lot just in general terms of like knowing what it is that i wanted from any type of entertainment experience and it's something that i would not trade and while i'm while it's bittersweet that naturally it had to die down but like that's just a law of entropy every system collapses i cannot regret anything that happened back then i can't take away anything negative from there'd be like good days and bad like i'll never forget like there's the one day where i was playing kof 99 in a bodega on post street and this is when hensi was around i was going up against this one kid who if i'm not mistaken his name is roberto and we were going there and this was kof 99 cabinet in the store that i ended up getting electrocuted in, which was you know a fun little side note and me and him, like, we were going back and forth. We had, like, I think, what was it? Like, if we were to put this in terms of, like, you no, know, just nowadays, you know, FGC terminology, we were basically playing, like, you no, know, a first to ten. Yeah. And it got to the point where it was, like, basically, you know, we got to, I think it was, like, seven, five in his favor. And I'm, like, doing everything I can. And I had the Kia Coogan Ryu team. And Hensi, God bless him, and this is one of the best people I know, but Hensi had a knack for saying nonsensical things. So while I'm literally on my anchor Takuma, he's down to his anchor Athena. Hence he is behind us, but in between the two of us. So no matter what he says, we're both going to be in earshot. He said, and I quote, man, all this tension's got me shitting craters. I stopped. <laughs> I, like, I couldn't do anything at that point. I turned around and said, Hensi, what the hell are you talking about? And I ended up losing everything. But still... I'm not going to change it. I wouldn't change that memory for anything. Even if it le- meant me, like, getting the better of Roberto at that time, I still don't give a damn. I loved that moment because, again, mm-hmm. it's part of one of those things that, again, like, it helped shape, you know, us growing up. You know, a lot of people, like, they had Galaga, they had Pac-Man, everything. We had fighting games back then. And, like, it just bled into everything else because, like, from there on out, like, once it shifted to consoles, I'll be perfectly blunt, and I've said this on a bunch of different occasions, dude, like, 85 to 90% of all the games that I've ever bought on console have been fighting games. Like, honestly, God, I just, I cannot get enough of them because something that, like, you learn going through life, like, if you ever want to understand, like, the full extent of somebody, there are two things you can do. Play them in KOF 97 and use the Orochi team or watch the meeting. And since, like, I had more access to an arcade than I did a restaurant, I always learned about people playing them in fighting games and like thus far it has never steered me wrong <laughs> well you have a nice foothold not only in westchester 
I know you, you know, went all over New York City as well. Yeah, I did. But the big one in New York City, of course, is Chinatown Fair. <sighs> when I did mean, you first find out about Chinatown Fair? And it's like, huh, this is where the biggest competitive scene is in New York City. Well, you know, when did you decide to, you know, step out of your stomping grounds, Westchester, Upper Bronx, and you decided to head down there? Mainly because of you, actually. Mm-hmm. You were the one who let me know about the place. And, like, I never forget the day, like, you know, we just decided, all right, screw it. We're going to go out to Chinatown Fair and see what they got there. And it was, you know, an adventure. I'm really not going to lie. Like, actually, like, because that was the first time I ever took the subway by myself. You no. Know, Taking the bus, like, like taking the bus, like, you no, know, you took the B-Line. If you live in Yonkers, or better yet, if you live in Westchester, you're going to be dealing with the B-Line buses everywhere. You can't throw a rock without hitting one, basically. But it was the first time that I ever took the subway. And what I really remember is, like, just feeling like it was some kind of, like, a secret in a weird way. Because, like, you get off of Canal Street or Brooklyn Bridge, depending on whether or not you take the Express. You get out there and you start walking, and you're walking on Canal Street. And then you got to turn onto Mott. And then you got to go down there. And like, it's weird because, like, the further and further you go down Mott, like, the narrower and narrower yeah. the street gets. And there's more stuff around. And you're seeing all this stuff. And then you get to this, like, one relatively inconspicuous building that has Chinatown Fair up there. But, like, you're so inundated by seeing a bunch of, like, you no know, Chinese kanji and whatnot that you can't even recognize English when it pops up out of nowhere. And the second you walk in there, just like I mentioned about Nathan's, like, that chaos, that noise. And what was so amazing is that it was comforting. I wasn't jarred by that. I felt like at peace. I felt at home in a weird way. Second, I crossed that threshold and I see all these games and they had everything there that I could have won. Because again, like just I, like I just said, fighting games are my thing. Still are, to be honest. And they had everything that you could have wanted there. Every like big fighting game at the time. And like, it's not like so much that it was ever like categorically set up properly. Like that's just my OCD talking. I'm not going to lie, but like you can go to one side of it and you can have KOF 98. You can go to another side and you can have, you know, street fighter two, you can go to like something in the corner there and you can come across Marvel's Capcom. So to be around that and just have so many different options, like the freedom to you know the freedom of choice that was overwhelming, but like the noise, the chaos, like just like, the thickness of that atmosphere, that was such a relief to get there. And just being there while it was a big thing. Because truth be told, like when I went there, I was completely clueless about the competitive scene. It never crossed my mind. I was either, frankly, I was too young to appreciate it. And I was honestly got too stupid to, you know, honor it. So to just like be there, that was the main thing. But looking back at it now, and it's like thinking about all the major names and everything that like, you know, that was like, you know, our, I don't want to say cesspool, but like, like that was our breeding water, basically. Like that was the primordial soup that the FGC really came out of. And it was the same in every state, like everywhere had, whether it was like by name or just by brand or like just by technicality, every other state had a Chinatown fair to one degree or another. So to see that and in hindsight realized that while we were there and we were just again like literally diving head first into like every fighting game we could get our grubby little hands on at the time there was some dude in california doing the exact same thing there was some kid in florida coming across the cabin thinking 
all right, I'm going to put my money into this. There's some kid out in Colorado who's like, no, I don't know what the hell they do out in Colorado. I don't even know what the hell the weather is like out there. All right, so be it. Yeah, like whatever. And like they're doing what they do and they come across a like little corner store or a little like, no, like five and dime or whatever. And they see an arcade cabinet and they thought, that's what I'm going to be doing for a few minutes. The fact that that was the community before we knew what it was. Honestly, God, like as an adult now, I can appreciate and respect that so much more. I wish I could take a lot of what I know now, not so much in terms of like skill and whatnot, because honestly, God, if I knew what I knew, if I knew now, or rather if I knew then what I know now in terms of playing, I would have money matched so many different people. Honestly, God, like I would have run the pockets on everybody in Yakuza if I had the opportunity, but neither here nor there. If I knew then what I knew now about what all of this is going to become, I would have, like, dug my heels in a lot earlier, to be frank. A little-known arcade not many people talk about. Me and Rodney talked about it maybe two minutes because he worked there. Neil Crash in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. That was another big competitive arcade there. Yes, it was. Not not many people knew about it, you know? But what were your experiences with it? Funny little asterisk about Neil Crash. That's where I met Rodney. But the thing is, I didn't figure that out until years later. Like, me and Ronnie, we were at a Halloween party. Like, what was it? I think three or four years ago. And on the way there, because of something Ronnie said to his wife, Leilani, like, suddenly it's like that moment from Memento where, like, everything makes sense. And I realized, holy shit, that was Ronnie that was telling me about this. Because Ronnie actually sold me the KOF 99 soundtrack. <laughs> and, like, when I put that two and two together, A, I felt I felt like the biggest dick. This is the simple mm-hmm. fact that I didn't recognize it earlier. But at the same time, that just goes to show you that, you know, this love that everybody has of fighting games, and by extension, competitive gaming, it runs so much deeper sometimes than even we're aware of at the immediate moment. So when it came to Neo Crash, like, I love taking the trip out there. Simply because, again, like, any time that you can go to the Bronx. Mind you, like, at the time that we were going to Neo Crash, like, you know, I was coming to my own in terms of, like, you know, adolescence and whatnot. So I enjoyed the view, so to speak, when we would get to the Bronx. I'm sorry, all right? Again, like I said, I was a pubescent male. What do you want me to say? But the truth of the matter is, I enjoyed the view along the way, but I love the fact that you can go to Neo Crash, you can play the games, and then you had all of this gaming memorabilia, too. Because, again, like, like I just said a second ago, I got the KOF 99 soundtrack there. And, like, that opened up my, like, world as far as, like, music is concerned. Because, like, you think of, like, video game music. You really don't put anything contemporary to it. You either think of something relatively, like, mundane, like music from Mario Brothers. Or, at the time, you think of something, like, big and grandiose, like the music from Final Fantasy. You never stop and think about, like, a song that I can actually, like, sit down and bop to. Like, you never think about, like, if I was into writing like my brother was at the time, you would have never thought, like, oh, like, you know what? I could put a freestyle to this if I had enough time with it. Having that access to the music of KOF 99, because KOF 99, like, while it's not the best KOF soundtrack, it's one of the better ones. And considering, I'm not going to say the sharp decline, but the change of direction between KOF 99 and KOF 2000, KOF 99, like I said, that was the cream of the crop at the time. And being able to, like, really sit there and, like, 
absorb that music, especially when I found out the difference between original and arranged. That was a huge turning point for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you know, I'm a, like, yeah, it's like, for anybody who does not know this, I'm an audiophile. So for me, like, to actually find out that, again, like, there's music that's not just the loop that I hear every time I put a quarter in, but, like, somebody actually went out of their way to have a beginning, a middle, and end, like, you know, an opening, a bridge, and a closing. I love that thing. Like, dude, I burnt that CD so many times. I wanted everybody I knew to get a listen to this song, to get a listen to that soundtrack back in the day. And I owe all of that to Neo Crash and subsequently to Rodimus Prime. So, again, definitely a shout-out to you on that one, Rodney. So we went around a whole bunch right there from Westchester to New York City. You probably didn't make it out much to Long Island, did you? I know. Well, from previous episodes on this show, we know Long Island is a, is a mixed bag. A lot of Mortal Kombat out there. Mm. You know, a lot of Street Fighter as well. So they're nice and mixed. New York City... That's Capcom, Capcom country, excuse me. Oh, yeah. Queens has some parts of SNK. I don't know if they want to be just called SNK country. They're still a little bit mixed. Bronx is definitely Tekken country. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> What's Westchester? Now, people know that Smash country. Oh, people, yeah. People, like, hands down. But Not back like... then in the 90s, what was it? Back then, to be truly, truly honest, the one type of game that I saw everywhere and it didn't matter like what part of westchester i went to honest to god if i had to put like one particular title on westchester was versus country in all honesty because i can think of a bunch of different places where i would see like you know children of the atom or i would see like you know super street fighter 2 or whatnot and they got draws like you know every now and again you'd see somebody who's like probably trying to kill time put a quarter or two in there but when the versus games hit, like that's what set everybody off in Westchester. That's what like really started getting the crowds. This is what really got people dumping dollars and dollars and dollars into these machines, man. Because like first it was X Men vs Street Fighter, then it was Marvel Super Heroes vs Street Fighter. And the one thing that I can really, really attribute to like the boom, so to speak, is that Marvel Street Fighter, no Marvel Super Heroes vs Street Fighter had something that other games at the time didn't: secret characters. And the second that became a thing, that led to everybody like going online and trying to figure things out. And then they come to find out that other games got secret characters or like, you know, different ways you can do supers. Like that what that was the thing that led to people having that thirst for knowledge. That's what led to people wanting to know how to play the games, not just play them because they're there. So if I had to put a label on it like back then, back in them days for us versus like it didn't matter what it was like it was whether it was x-men vs street fighter marvel superhero street fighter marvel's capcom the whole thing like that's what it like those three games helped shape westchester back then you know, it's funny you bring that up because just a few doors down from our old stomping grounds giovanni's mm. they actually still have a marvel versus capcom one machine i know i see thing, it. it's in kennedy fried chicken yes, and that yeah, thing like, gets a lot of play still and again know? like that just goes to prove my point man because again like it's one of those things is on one hand again it's a legacy thing. You got two big names. You got two big companies coming together. At the same time, it's basically that same thing that, like, you no know, little eight-year-old Dynamics saw when he was walking out of that movie theater. I recognize these two people. I recognize those two characters. I didn't know you could put them in the same game. Like, granted, like, I know now about, like, IP law and copyrights and all that stuff. Little me didn't. So all little me saw 
was two characters that I recognized from different things that I really, really liked coming together. And it's something that I could actually experience. So that was, again, like for everybody that I knew back in the day, and I'm talking like literally everybody. I'm talking about, you know, Big V and his cousins. I'm talking about that, like, you know, Rockhead Sean. I'm talking about Grandpa Reggie. I'm talking about Soto Paul. I'm talking about all those cats that used to hang out at Chow Chow's, all those cats who used to chill up and down the school street and whatnot. Everybody who went to the back pocket, everybody who would hang out at, like, you know, Casa Filipina and Giovanni's back then. Like, that was, like, that was it for us. You know, I would say the only game that even came close and kind of, like, wedged its way in was Tech and Tech, which in and of itself is technically a versus game, too. So, again, like, that's what it was. Like, if I had to put, like, a textbook name in, like, basically tag titles, that's what Westchester was back in the day. Hey, listen, if Robocop could fight the Terminator on the Genesis and Super Nintendo, Ryu and Cyclops could fight each other. Damn straight. <laughs> So you had, you know, nice long history of arcade machines, arcade games. You know, you met some of your best friends playing arcade games, playing Case video games. Mm -hmm. Let's hear that. You know, let's hear the answer to the question. I've asked a lot of people. How did you feel when it all started crumbling down? When you went into one of your stores, let me put it in a quarter and the machines were gone. And you went to another one. It's like, what's going on? And then it just came down to one min minuscule area. That, you know, that one little part in South Yonkers, and then that was gone, and then we only had Chinatown Fair, because Neo Crash by then was already gone as yeah, well. Yeah, it was. I mean, how hard did that hit you? Because I've known you a long time, man. You are you are as big a video gamer as that I know of. Mm. You know, Thank how, you. How, 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 how hard did that hit you? It took a lot of getting used to. And on one hand, in the big picture... It wasn't that big of a, no, not that, that serious of a blow because at the time, you know, again, I was coming to my own in terms of like growing up, you know, this is going to sound terrible, but like, I'm sorry for all like, no, my relatives that are about to hear this, but again, I was discovering women, I was discovering weed, I was discovering booze. Like I said, I had other distractions going on in my life at that time. And as much as I love gaming, I kind of like those new things a little bit more. Can you blame me? But at the same time, it did sap a little bit out of me walking up and down South Broadway. And I'll never forget the day that I was walking up South Broadway and I was just thinking about swinging by the back pocket because I wanted to talk to Sonny and all them because like that's the one thing that you got to understand when you like built a rapport, like when you had a like a legend or like you had a for lack of any other way of saying, when you had a career at one of these places, you got to know everybody there. Of course, of course. And, like, it wasn't maybe the healthiest relationship for a 12-year-old to know everybody at a pool hall, but I still knew all those guys because they always saw me. It even got so bad to the point that, like, when I was a kid, I used to have to give my parents, like, a list of all the numbers of places that I would be. One of them places happened to be the back pocket. So every now and again, whenever I would just kind of, like, forget when curfew was, Either my mom or my pops, they would call the back pocket asking for Mike. <laughs> you have no idea how much that pissed Sonny off. <laughs> but that's how me and Sonny got to know each other. That's how me and Sonny got to be, like, you no know, familiar with each other. That's how me and him basically, again, got to just, you know, be to that point where we're comfortable. He knew who I was because he knew I was always going to come to play those games. And, again, like, he got to the point where he would tell me, 
every now and again, like if it was getting too late, he would like come over and say like, yo, Mike, it's getting to the time you need to head out. And while younger Mike may have been a little bit hesitant, eventually I got the point. I got the gist of it. He was just doing that to help me out. Same thing with Ray. Same thing with Miss Virginia. Like, they got so familiar with me being there that they knew what, like, you know, my pattern, what my schedule and everything was. And they didn't want to see me get in trouble or anything like that. They just wanted me to go there, enjoy myself, but they wanted me to be safe. They wanted me to be responsible. So when those experiences and then moments and all those different locations started drying up, again, the dickhead afro, for lack of any other way of saying it. Who's that? Yeah, you know. Yeah, the one I was talking about. He Not didn't that. care. Okay. But the Afro that was walking, and again, I keep coming back to this, the Afro that was walking out of that movie theater, that never left. He's still inside. He cried a little bit because, again, like that was something that he was never going to be able to get back. And don't get me wrong. I appreciate console gaming and everything that comes with it. But there's a different experience. It's something that, again, like it's intangible. And in honesty, God, it escapes words because... You can have an offline session nowadays and you can still have your friends around or you can do something online. You know, knock on wood, you got rollback in your game and whatnot. Is this what? I don't know. <laughs> but there's nothing that's going to match being elbow to elbow, quarters on that front row of the glass. No. I got next being repeated back and time and time again over and over. That like weird little huddle you get. That ooh and ah, whenever you would pull off something that you were either practicing when nobody else was around or like when the place opened up early or that like, you no know, one super move that you found out how to do when <laughs> by going to game facts back in the day, like nothing's ever going to match that. And yeah, like when, when it started going down, ironically, I was working in Nathan's when everything was like circling the drain, so to speak. And like the last big game that we had as far as like no arcade games for fighters and whatnot was svc chaos and i'm happy that that was like the last game that we had there like every before they like tore everything down and remodeled it i didn't see a whole bunch of different fighting games like they had like the like loot bags and all that stuff of course. you know because I mean, by all means it yeah. was a fun center it wasn't an arcade exactly. like you know something like chinatown fair but regardless exactly but like fabio and them like fabio wayne the getlins like they understood what drew they understood what brought money to the place and they saw the writing on the wall so like once it got time to like pull the plug both figuratively and literally they didn't hesitate so like seeing that again like the inner child so to speak like it wept that day but the external me like i understood what needed to be done and i did it begrudgingly but i had to like sign off on that i had to go along with the times basically now you've always been a gamer you're you're someone like james mk where when i talk to him you know he plays fighting games he likes them but he always said story comes first to him since I've known you, you've always been a story-based person. You love your stories. And yes, I do. I mean, how many quarters did you spend on things like KOF and others just to get the ba- try to get the backstory on characters? You spend a lot of time online looking up the backstory of set characters, of series in general. Uh-huh. Like, why, why do you enjoy that so much? Is it just that form of entertainment where it's like, I'm going to find out everything I can just because it's that much fun to me? 
it's a twofold answer for me because like number one again i'm obsessive impulsive like i like whenever i'm even remotely interested in something i have to know everything about it it doesn't matter like what it is and it doesn't matter how useful it is to me i absolutely have to know everything i can know about it and everything that's available to know secondly when i was growing up i was the bookworm in my family so like reading all these different stories like reading all these different books and whatnot all this fiction and like, all these different novels and like reading stuff that to be perfectly frank like young me had no business reading all right like honestly i like a eight-year-old kid reading 1984 simply because that was the year he was born terrible fucking idea but again that's what i did so it just got to the point where again me like whenever there was a hint of a story whenever i got to the idea that like something bigger was going on i had to know what it was so for me again yeah story is always going to be something that like it comes primarily first for me it's part of the reason that like i will dedicate whatever time i can to a good fighting game and i know i'm in the minority of i may know of a minority because of that fact but in doing so to kind of like bring us up to the present that helps me in commentary because knowing everything that i know about a character on a quote-unquote personal level or at least fictionally personal level allows me to understand a lot of what goes on to like how certain characters play why you get special music for certain characters why there are weird <laughs> little intros for it this is one of the reasons why i love street fighter alpha 3 so much because like for everything that like street fighter was you never had any re you know any reference to that in the game you would have the endings and whatnot but the endings were like really really like short and concise some of them made sense a lot of them didn't but when it came to Street Fighter Alpha 3, suddenly, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Ono. Maybe it was somebody else there. Hell, maybe it was even KJ Inafune. Who knows? Somebody got the idea to say, hey, how about we make some of this make sense? And everybody benefited from that. Like, dude, honestly, God, ask yourself a question. How, like, how enlightening, like, how giddy did you feel? The first time you played Street Fighter Alpha 3, and it happened to be a match between Ken and Ryu, and you saw Ken get Ryu in that noogie and him throw him over. How cool was that back in the day, man? <laughs> all these, like, different things. Like, just think about all the stuff that went into it. And again, it was a simple, small change, but it made all the difference. And because of stuff like that, like, that's what draws me into these stories, man. Like, that's what draws me into, like, wanting to know more about the characters and, like, their motivation. Because, like, the second you understand that, I know people, like, they're going to be people who, like, look at a game and they look at it from a purely mechanical point. That's all fine and good. Like, that, for a competitive standpoint, that's generally what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, really, really, like, getting a personal rapport and, like, getting a good, deep-down understanding of what's going on, you kind of have to know this stuff. And if you don't, you're going to end up like, at least on my side of the profession, you're going to end up on the mic not knowing why, oh, the music changed or not knowing why there's a quick cutscene between two characters. And you're going to end up sounding like a dumbass when you try to fill in the blank on your own. So when I was younger, again, it was purely because like I needed to know. And now that I'm older and now that I'm in the like, you know, quote unquote profession that I'm in, it helps so much more by being aware of that stuff. Is that overlooked these days? Yes. Yes, very much Why so. Why is that? 
mainly because the competitive side took such prevalence. And everybody wants to know how a game works, how a game functions, what's the frame data, what's the matchup chart, how the tier list plotted out, what's the meta and everything. And they look at it from a purely clinical, mechanical standpoint. I heard this once in a movie. I can't remember what one it was, but like this quote always stuck with me. You know, you who would dare to, you know, measure life when you look at everything with a bathroom scale. That's basically what it became. It became so route, so mechanical, so clinical, where you just wanted to know the general competitive information. And I'm not knocking that. If you want to compete, you need to know what the hell you're going up against. But because that took such a front seat to everything else that goes into gaming, like presentation, stuff like that. And when I say presentation, I'm talking about how like everything in a game comes forward. Graphics is one thing. Presentation is another. And honest to God, folks, if you don't know the difference by now, I can't help you. I'm real sorry. But case in point, look at, say, Guilty Gear. Now, Guilty Gear's story is completely ass-backwards bananas. From pillar to post, I don't care what part of the game or what chapter of the game you try to get into. At a glance, none of it makes sense. But the game is always presented really, really well. But when you walk into a game looking only at the presentation and not looking at any of the continuity behind it, there is a huge gap in what you could be knowing. There is a reason why... Every time you play Soul and he has Dragon install, you're just going to look at that. If you're looking at it from a purely competitive standpoint, all you're going to focus on the fact is that, okay, his Gunflame is enhanced and his Volcanic Viper becomes a multi-hit instead of the two or three. If you know about the world behind it, you're going to understand what the hell Soul is and you're going to understand why he can't do it forever. Stuff like that makes a big difference. Because if, say, like somebody who just literally picked up Guilty Gear, and I'm talking about like Guilty Gear, like, no, X and uh, Axe and Core and Plus R and all that stuff. If somebody tries to pick up that game and they're on the mic, they're watching a match between Soul and whoever. Soul player does Dragon install. And again, dude who does not know what the hell is going on is going to see, all right, he's glowing red. A bunch of his moves are like, no, stronger now. Why the hell did he stop? I know that answer. You don't. And if we're on a stream in the middle of a broadcast, you're the one that's going to look like a dumbass for not knowing. That's important because when you're on the mic, you are now the bridge in terms of information between the players, the game, and the audience. And it is your job and honest to God, your responsibility to be the bridge between the two. Anybody who does not take that seriously is doing themselves a disservice. What's your all-time favorite fighting game storyline and why? <sighs> you probably already know the answer to this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Orochi Saga from KOF. And the reason why it's my favorite is because like, that was the first big overarching story I ever saw in a fighting game. Like... You can look at Street Fighter, and as much as I enjoyed Street Fighter back in the day, particularly like the Street Fighter 2 series, and I gotta say it that way, I'm sorry, the Street Fighter 2 series, it is, honest to God, it is like Saturday morning cartoon fair. So much, in fact, that they had a Saturday morning cartoon, which at times... It was okay. Yeah, at times, 
almost made more sense than what was going on in the game. Go back and watch that cartoon, and you'll understand why that's a sad fact. All right. <laughs> and then you have bigger games. And you have different games, like say, like you know, Fatal Fury, and that's like something out of an old kung fu film. You know, this dude killed my father. I got to get revenge. Basic story. Presentation's a little bit different. You know, instead of being in like ancient China, they're in what is functionally an amalgamation between San Francisco and New York. Southtown. Exactly. That's where it started for a lot of us, to be really, really frank. And that built into something else. That becomes this thing. It's the snow no, it's the snowflake at the top of the mountain that eventually becomes an avalanche. And when it came to KOF, specifically ninety four to ninety seven, this was this huge giant story that brought what was it? Like four or five different games together. Did it in a convincing and logical example actually managed to incorporate Japanese folklore into it and made it make sense contextualize it and at the same time give us like some of the best gaming we had in like the mid to late 90s and like honest to god man like seriously you'll remember this because you were there during those you know Casa Filipina days and I'll ask, now I'll turn things around and I'll ask you a quick question. How much money did you spend on KOF 97 when Miss Virginia added that? A lot. Exactly. <laughs> and again, the reason being is because once you see that there are like little hints, there are breadcrumbs that are put in the game, it's going to intrigue, it's going to entice your curiosity. You're going to need to know more. And the first time I ever fought Orochi Leona, one, a lot of weird feelings kicked up in me. Not going to lie, but I know I'm not the only one. Two, I needed to know what the hell was going on. Like, why is this chick who was working with, like, my two, two of my favorite characters, why the hell is she suddenly turning into a rabid zombie? Like, what the hell is going on there? And, like, even furthermore, because, unfortunately, I played the, like, earlier KOF games out of order. So when it got to, like, that little cutscene about Leona being a member of the Hakeshu, or really a member of the Asakani, and her having the ride of blood triggered in her by Gonitz. I didn't know who the hell Gonitz was. I thought that was Yamazaki for a minute. And again, that made me look like an ass if I didn't Real know. Gonitz? Exactly, yeah. Do you have any idea how embarrassing it is to get your ass whooped literally hundreds of times by somebody named Leopold? All right. Well, like, to be fair, he controlled wins. Doesn't matter. It's still <laughs> the principle of the thing. But nonetheless, like I didn't know that. So automatically I had this like you no know, big wide gap in the knowledge and the information I had. So later on, years after I like you know had all my phone with KOF ninety seven, I ended up going back to KOF ninety six, and that's when I found out that's where Leona was introduced. And then I found out again, like, oh, that's not Yamazaki, that's going. It's all right. And who the hell could have blamed me? Because again, number one, I was a kid at the time, and two, they basically looked alike. All right. With the exception of like the like you no know, pencil you know, the pencil beard that go in its hat, they functionally are the same person, all right? There's no way I could have known the difference at the time. But because it kickstarted my curiosity and because it you no know, it appealed to again like that part of me that needs to know more, I kept going. I kept pursuing it. And the more and more I looked into this, the more and more I realize that there's a lot of stuff going on within the storyline that isn't even really referenced in the games. It's stuff that comes years before. It's stuff that happens 
course. Like, you know, ages before these games come in. Like, you know, while to put this in, uh, like, chronological order in terms of, like, SNK canon, like, while we're so busy being fixated on Artifighting 2 and Fatal Fury, there's this whole other, you know, thing going on in Japan that we didn't know about that, oh, by the way, is going to determine the fate of the world. I'd like to, I would have liked to have gotten a memo on that, all right? I'm busy getting my ass whooped by Leaf Hylan and in, in you know, Art of Fighting. And meanwhile, oh, this dude is killing his entire family and getting his mother's blood in his hair. And that's why he's a redhead. So, yeah, stuff like that matters. Or at least more importantly, it matters when you want to know what's going on. And the fact that a lot of it has taken a back burner to, like, cross-promotion, you know, console exclusivity whatever the hell no whatever type of like you know pro tour or like competitive circuit can be built around it like that is it's kind of like you know watching a remake of an old movie like if for example you and i we both love the first turtles movie we're somewhat indifferent towards the second and the third and i had to assume you felt a little awkward seeing the latest turtles movie yes again there's something really really important that has been forsaken between point A and point B. And that little something, that gap there, that's that's what drives me. That's one of those things where, again, like, I need to know why. And if you can't answer that question, there's going to be this big gaping hole in what you're supposed to be experiencing. And I personally, I cannot live with that. You love fighting games. This is true. Tech Romancer, Plasma Sword, Rage of the Dragons, Rumblefish, Rumblefish 2, Neo Geo Battle Coliseum. A lot of games that the community otherwise doesn't pay much attention. How much do you hold those games dear to your heart? Because they are different, you know? Yes, they are. They, it was rare to see a cabinet of them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you basically almost got arcade perfect ports for the Dreamcast and we spend a lot of time playing those games. Yeah, the obscure no games, how much do you love them? Honest do you love God. them more than you know KOF and other games or do, do they just hold a nice special place in your heart because they are part of fighting game history? It's a column A, column B thing for me because while I love KOF and a lot of stuff that SNK has done and while I love like you no know, Capcom for majority of stuff that they did those games gave me something so worlds apart different from what I was getting from the you know usual stuff. Like, honest to God, I remember the first time I saw the Blue Flash combo in Last Blade 2. Rocked my world. <laughs> first time I got to, like, really sit down and, well, not necessarily sit down because, again, it was at the cabinet, you know, she, you know, Miss Virginia didn't have the, like, you no know, sit-down cameras that we got nowadays. The first time I got to, like, really behold Tech Romancer, dude, like, I'm fairly sure that there was a cartoon theme song that stated this, and I'm going to repeat it. Everybody loves giant robots. So, like, what's not to love about a fighting game with giant robots in it? And every type of giant robot you could want. You had your Gundams. You had your Transformers. You had your, like, no, Sailor Scout, no, robots. You know, you had your, like, nonsensical things. Like, what was her name? Pollen. Like, I still don't know what the hell that chick was all about. But, again, like, you had all these different, like, no, genres of, like, no, giant robo stuff going on. And they were fighting each other, all right? You turn around to see games like Plasma Sword. And to this day, I still 
have no idea what the hell is going on with Rayon. One of the most terrifying characters to come up against because he was one of those, like, if you play well enough, he's your, you know, the boss after the boss of the game. Yes. And he had, like, his own raging demon, which are like, what, 80% of your life? Yes. Yeah, again, like I said, one of the most difficult fights you can have because he was a mirror of Baiko. And as tough as a character to fight as Baiko was, Rayon was cranked to 11. Mm-hmm. So, again, like I said, stuff like that where I got this, like, familiar but ever so slightly adjusted experience, like, they're always going to be, like, right up there for me. Like, it's... Honest to God, like in terms of just like gaming memories, those are some of my absolute favorites, man. Is Project Justice the best out of all those games? Let's see. I would have to say that it's a really, really close tie between Project Justice and Last Blade 2. No, and mind you, that's not a knock against Sam Show. Because, like, Sam Show, again, like, that was literally everybody either sh- no does or damn well should remember where they were what they were wearing and how salty they were the first time they got hit by Haramaro's far standing sea <laughs> and all of that life melted away doesn't matter what game it was same difference every time but at the same time with last blade you had options you need to go speed you can go power if you knew what the code was you can go ex there were different, like, you know, archetypes there. Like, you know, you had Juzo or, like, you no know, now Ishigen. Those are your heavy hitters. Those are your, like, you know, armor types. You had, like, you know, your in-and-out, like, pestering characters, like Kari or Habiki, for that matter. You know, you had your characters that, for all intents and purposes, I have no other way of describing them, but, like, you know, you had your Dan's in that game. Like, what's it? I can't remember what that dude's name was, but the dude who had the giant pompadour. Right. Exactly. Right. Absolutely hated using him. Hated fighting against him because when you try to play as him, nothing works. You go up against him. Literally, he's pulling out crap that you've never seen before. That isn't even on the move list that can take like half your life bar. Right. So, again, to see stuff like that, again, I love like the I feel dirty saying it this way, but I love like the mainstream games for everything that they gave me. But when you have like those real awkward kind of like really niche games. Those two stand head and shoulders above. I want to say everything else with the subtle exception of Garo Mark of the Wolves. But I think like Garo was that game that it broke out of what would have been the mold that was supposed to be cast for it. Because it was generally supposed to be kind of like a throwaway flash forward sequel to Fatal Fury. But then everybody started playing it. Why? Because it was a damn good game. That's why. And it was, and we were talking about this earlier. It's one of those games where it didn't need a giant cast. It had like maybe 10, 12 characters in it. But everything you needed in a fighting game was on that roster. And everything worked. Minus a couple of weird janky crap that it had in the game. But every game, every arcade game has that. But for the most part, everything worked solid. Everybody played relatively fairly. Everybody had a chance. Everybody had something that made them viable. And that's why I loved those types of games back in the day. Another fun game real quick before we move on. Psychic Force 2012. That was another fun game. Such a fun little game. But uh, 
you said it yourself, man. You had some other interests, so you maybe moved away a little bit from from video games, fighting games. Mm-hmm. When did you first start getting wind of the competitive scene, the FGC? First time I ever got wind of it was coincidentally the last day of Chinatown Fair. Because I remember you called me that day and I was at work. Well, you had been to Chinatown Fair beforehand. Did you not look at it as the FGC now or did you just look at it as an arcade where everybody just went hardcore? It's basically one of those like weird usual suspect things because if I look, no, thinking about it now, all the information, all the, you know, ironically, again, all the usual suspects were like literally lined up there. But I was too busy playing to notice. Yeah. And then now that I look back, it's my Kobayashi moment. Suddenly I realized, wow, like this is what everything was coming from. This is where all these people, all these names that I recognize now, that's where they started. You know, that's where all like, you no, know, and I don't like using this word too often, but like that's where all the clicks that you see now, like that's where a lot of them got their footing. That's where a lot of them met. Like, that's where a lot of all the tech that we see that we I'll honestly say take for granted. That's where it all started. So, yeah, I. It's hard to say that, again, like it's one of those things where. If again, hindsight being 2020, if I knew then what I know now, like I said earlier, I would have dug my heels in it, but. I was where I was at the time, both like mentally and like just in terms of like skill and capacity. So there was always going to be a gap between me and the people that I would come to recognize as like, you know, those upper echelon players. And to really just, God, I hate saying this because like, you know, me being a commentator and everything, but this is one of those moments where it's weird, where it's kind of left me a little bit speechless. Just damn. Sorry, everybody. Just, yeah. I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, your first big event was when you came down with me to one of the NECs. It was a big event. I forgot what the heck it was. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I remember, you know, we used to go to them. I went down there to play MK, you know, because I love playing Mortal Kombat. And I would get, you know, I would actually play Goro, Mark of the Wolves, because literally Mortal Kombat 2 and Goro are the only fighting games I ever took seriously. Mm-hmm. But you were always more of a spectator. How come you never really... How come you never really competed? Because when... Is it because you were involved with other things and games was just not a priority at the time? It wasn't that. Truth be told, the first time that I went to a really big event, I recognized almost immediately the width and the breadth in terms of the skill gap for me. And because of, like, all those aforementioned, like, you know, other interests, and I'll be perfectly blunt, distractions, because it's frankly what they were at the time, because they were all taking different levels of prevalence in my life, I knew that I was never going to be able to catch up. I knew that the first time I went to a big event, because I remember going there and I was watching them play, I was watching them play one Soul Calibur game, and I was sitting there, and it was with Patroclus. And it was with, like, Omega Patroclus or Alpha Patroclus, like, the other version of Patroclus, whatever the hell his name was. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to, you know, trying to remember why the hell his fighting style looks so, you know, so familiar. 
And I just got to the point where I literally I had to break down and ask somebody, like, why am I recognizing this? And it never dawned on me that the reason that Patroclus, you know, Alpha Patroclus is finding Sally so familiar is because he was finding the way Satsuna does. It never dawned on me. And like in that moment, that was like a really quick microcosm of why I could never compete. Because I like there was just this huge, huge grand canyon between where I was and where the scene was in terms of competitive nature. And I was never going to be able to cross it. Well, you know, obviously you go to these things and you went to a few of them with me. You know, maybe you, maybe you had gone to some of them by yourself as well. You probably also attended a few offline events in Westchester. But when did you get together with Ronnie, Steve, KPB, and you decided, you know what, this is what I want to do. This is this is going to be my next step in my gaming journey. Coincidentally, it was at Clarkson's Corner. Like I said, and again, shout out to Steve Clarkson. Like, dude, you are the MVP. And it was just fun because at the time, something actually had happened, like, completely removed from, I guess you could say, the public eye that got me back into gaming. Or more to the point, actually got me to stay in gaming. And oddly enough, it was Skullgirls. Because I remember seeing Skullgirls at a bunch of different events that we would go to in Philadelphia. And I could see there was an unfinished game. But it was a cool-looking game. So I figured, all right, screw it. Like, if it ever came out, or whenever the hell it would come out, I would go for it. And when the time came, I did. And it was fun. It was awesome. It gave me everything that, like, me personally, I want. It gave me a really short, but very, very concise roster. It gave me full-fledged characters, both in terms of, like, functionality and personality. It gave me a story that was engaging, and it gave me a fighting engine that I could sink my teeth into. But because of a few of those other details, there was a ceiling, or rather, there was a bottom that I reached pretty quickly. And the idea of being competitive never crossed my mind. So one day, a year or so later, after like I kind of like just put it away, I get this message on PSN, and they're telling me about, sec- no, they're telling me about Encore, and they're basically telling me that because you supported us back then. We're going to give you everything coming out in this new addition to the game for free. And that put me back. That drew me back into it. Suddenly I realized, wow, somebody out there is actually, you know, looking out for me. Somebody out there is actually like, you know, rewarding me for playing the game, for actually giving a damn. And that's something that has been woefully lost in a lot of fighting games nowadays. So because of that, I started playing fighting games again, and I just like I dove head at first, I dove head first into it. I picked up that. I never really got into Street Fighter Four because like by then like I had my fun with Street Fighter Three and like all of its iterations. Street Fighter Four like I couldn't get my footing in that game, but it's mainly because my experience with it was like so sporadic and so intermittent that I never got a foothold. But I turned around, I started playing Tekken again, got back into that. You know, I started looking around for, like, other fighting games. And, like, this is around the time where me and you started hanging out again. And, like, I read full hog on, like, anything that the you know, Dreamcast could, like, offer us. And it just became this thing where I got that drive again. So when you brought up to me about, like, the Friday nights at Clarkson's Corner, I figured, screw it. Like I said, this would be a perfect time to do it. 
And since I was like just like fooling around with whatever fighting game I could get my hands on to, I figured this is just perfect time to like just be around people who like playing fighting games. And there was like one particular day where I believe it was Rod. He talked to me. He said like, hey, we're going to be going to this event. Like you want to come and chill with us? I figured, all right, yeah, sure. A, I wasn't doing anything because like I was working at, uh, what was it? I was working at, you know, Curtis where I work now. And we got weekends off there. So like Friday o'clock, no, Friday afternoon at four o'clock, I'm free to do whatever the hell I want. If I want to cross state lines, if I want to leave New York altogether, I can leave the coast if I needed to. So I had no problem just getting up there and doing that. And what event was it? If memory serves, it was no, it was an apex. No, it wasn't like the apex that you and me worked the door. It was the apex before that. And I remember like being there, and I just felt like I was giddy because like you know I felt as silly as this is going to sound. I felt like one of the guys at that point. And because, like, no, Ron and Steve, like, they extended this olive branch to me. Like, like I was indentured to them that entire weekend. Like, if they needed anything within reason, like, I was, no, more than happy to do it. Like, Did you get your KPB shirt before or after the event? Well after the event. Okay. There was a reason for that, but, you know, I'll come back to that, you know, later if there's time. But, like, when it came to that particular weekend, like I said, it, I said, look, guys, if you need me to help with anything, just say the word. So, like, there was a couple of times where they told me to, like, keep an eye on the door. And if they didn't have a wristband, don't let them in. And coincidentally, that's how I met L.I. Joe, because he was trying to sneak in without a wristband. It was not happening, all right? I'm sorry. I was given A, B, and C orders. X, Y, and Z got to happen after that. So, unfortunately, yeah, I chased L.I. Joe away from the door at that point. He came back. With his wristband later on. I don't know where the hell it was, but that's between him and his wristband. And then after that, like, they relieved me from that. I went inside to check on Ryan and Steve, and they said, like, hey, dude, could you run and find this guy for us? And without getting into too much detail, like, finding people is something I'm good at. So when it came to the point of saying, like, dude, like, we need somebody for a match that they got to play. By all means, I told him, look, tell me what he looks like. I'll be able to find him. Lo and behold, like, that's what I was doing for, like, I think, Two hours I did that. And that was like two hours I didn't even notice. I was just, again, like literally bulldozing my way through that entire crowd. If I needed to find somebody, as long as I knew what they looked like, I would find them and tell them like, yo, they need you over here. You're coming with me. I had some resistance on a few of those cases. I'm not going to lie. Probably should have introduced myself better instead of saying, come with me. Because, again, like looking the way I look and me being in a bit of a huff at the time, not the most congenial way to present myself, <laughs> but nonetheless, again, it was no, it was a blast. And then after that, they had me, they had me like working one of the tables to sell Megabus shirts. And I figured, right, hey, I'd never ridden Megabus before. I didn't even know what the hell Megabus was. Megabus has shirts. It did at that. It did at that event. So at that point, again, like I said, dude, like I became like the oh, car. Or yeah. oh, huh? they a sponsor? I guess so. But, like, whatever it was, like, dude, I became, like, the, like, Carney with a megaphone. I was preaching those shirts to heaven and back. I tried to get everybody involved with those shirts. I even left the table to, like, you know, engage with a couple of people. Again, should have introduced myself better instead of saying, hey, do you want this? Instead of, no, again, yeah, didn't really have a whole bunch of tact back in them days. But, uh, thankfully, I've learned a lot better now. You know, being, like, six for three and 200-plus pounds with the way that I look, you got to realize, yeah, 
if I come up to somebody half my size and I'm being super aggressive about this one thing that they didn't know was going on, I'm going to be the weirdo in that situation. So, yeah, thankfully, I learned that lesson. <laughs> but, yeah, and after that, you know, the dude who was running Apex at the time, like, I guess he had a surplus of fight sticks. So I ended up getting one. And unfortunately, because I always equate like that whole layout, I missed that whole thing. I was never a part of the FGC. So the idea of a fight stick was foreign to me. And every time I would try to play with it, I would always find myself wanting to stand up. Because again, like that yes. was the that was the immediate muscle memory for me. I could not work with a fight stick sitting down. So eventually like I appreciated the gift, but like I couldn't use it. I ended up like no, I ended up using that as like a prize for an event that we had later on at Clarkson's, and from there, you know, Ronnie he just saw how like literally doggedly determined I was with every task he gave me, so he asked me about joining, and like to come back to what you were saying earlier about like whether or not I was ever going to compete, I told him outright like, dude, I cannot compete, like I don't have it in me to do that, and Ronnie he like really just like said it to me straight like dude everybody's got something to contribute you don't have to only be a competitor you'll find what it is that you can do for the team but like with the way that you've helped us out and the way that you like constantly support us we want you on so that became that and like the rest is history basically before we get on to what you mainly do for the team now uh-huh you know, you, you you were talking a little bit about the funds of going to get people, you know, doing a few other things. I mean, you did that for a long time. You also contributed, you know, a lot of your time to helping the Skullgirls community because you ran a lot of events for them. You provided the pot bonuses for them. Yes, well. I did. This was, this was when you were kind of starting to decide you want to go into uh, um, commentary, mm -hmm. but explain explain to a few people and listen we we've seen a lot of people do it it's like you know i'm gonna go in i'm gonna be an organizer mm -hmm. i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that i'm gonna run a bracket but nobody really kind of does it as efficient as you did what's what you know what's the trick to you know just being as efficient as you are whereas you see a lot of people trying and just failing and getting the heck out the, the moment they can well one of the things that i can say and this is removed from gaming but it is a part of my personality I am driven by the idea of conquest. Like, a majority of the stuff, like, when I was a little kid, like, one of my favorite subjects was history. And my favorite subsect of that was war. Absolutely adore the idea of it. Like, the whole thing, like, honestly, like, my favorite battle back in the day was, like, the Trojan War. Absolutely adore that. The whole thing with Hector and Ajax. The whole thing between, like, you know, uh, what was the dude's name? Got him, like, you know, with Achilles, with Patroclus. All that stuff. That, like, you know, the idea of conquest and whatnot, like, it just, like, it drives me. It gets my blood to boiling. So when it comes time to being, an, or when it came to being an organizer, when it came to, like, really taking something on and being proactive about it, I simply saw it as, you know, territory. I simply saw it as, like, you know, conquest. The more I did, the more I wanted to. And I knew for a fact, if you're going to do something like that, it's basically how you run a business. Don't expect to make any profit that first year. That's just common sense. Expect to have some losses. Expect to have hangups. You know, expect to, you know, eat dirt in a lot of cases. But when it came to that, I really can't take credit for it. Because the truth of the matter is, 
as much as I enjoyed Skullgirls, remember, at this particular time, I was blissfully unaware of the bigger picture when it came to the FGC. So one of the responsibilities that was given to me when I came onto the team was that I started running the Facebook page and dealing with the majority of social media, social media presence. And after we put up some of the footage from a couple of the events that we did, mind you, like I wasn't on the mic at this point. I got a message from curly haired kid in Jersey. Now, he knows who he is, but I'm going to blow a spot right now. I'm referring to Ken in Black. Ken in Black reached out to me, and he said, Hey, man, we see that you guys have been, like, you know, doing stuff with Skullgirls. Do you think we could have a bracket at the next Big E event? Now, what Kenan could not have known about me, well, Kenan couldn't have known, period, is that I was the one on the other side of that message, and I love the game. At the same time, me and E were building a professional you know, relationship because when I came on, one of the things that I did, since technically I wasn't doing anything else, was that I was trying to like, you know, broker building up our presence. That's why that first summer jam that I went to as a member of the team, that's why I brought up Suarez. That's why I put up the pop bonus for, I believe it was Blaze Blue at the time. And that's why I went above and beyond to make sure that when it came time to say brought to you by KPB's logo was on that banner as well. So because of that, I wanted to, again, help the dude out because I love the game. But the one thing I noticed that I really didn't see it anywhere. So we had that first event. He didn't see a problem with it. I sold it to him. It's basically like, look, dude, it's a quick game. There won't be too many people there. It runs pretty fast. It goes on PS3, so you're not going to have to bring in any new things. You're just going to have to download a couple of things. Right. And, and, again, because it was a TO's dream game, in the sense that, again, it was quick, it was quiet, it was efficient, and there wasn't a huge bracket for it, he was cool with the idea. So we ended up having it. And what I did not take into account was how passionate the Skullgirls community was. <laughs> and, dude... You know, Rage can attest to this. I remember that we ended up having the top eight for that bracket at, I believe, the same time top eight for Street Fighter 4 was going on. The noise that that tiny little bubble of people made for Skullgirls drowned out the main crowd for Street Fighter 4. Got to the point where some people were like yelling at us to shut up, but we didn't. And from that moment on, I realized, like, look, the, like this crew, like this group, like they deserve a spot. They deserve to be acknowledged. They deserve, they deserve time. To, exactly. They deserve to be recognized. So from that moment on, everywhere that I went, I made sure Skullgirls came with me. You know, it happened when we went to a couple of events that Rapzilla was hosting, you know, in Jersey. Every Big E event, like, even if it meant with me talking with E, whether it was Zach back when he was doing things or whether it was me talking to Buck, I always made sure that Skullgirls was going to have at least bare minimum some bit of stream time on it. And because of that, that ultimately ended up helping us in the long run because by doing this, by propping up that game and by putting in pop bonuses for games that weren't getting a whole bunch of big pop bonuses at the time anyway, we became this voice for the voiceless. And suddenly it became an issue of, not really an issue, it became a matter of when people wanted 
acknowledgement when people who felt like, you know, I guess downtrodden or excluded for whatever reason, when they wanted somebody to represent them, they came to us. No, it worked with no KOF when KOF 13 had that like quick little resurgence because of the performance that it put on at Evo. They came to KO. No, they came to KPB when Skullgirls again, like when they took all that traction and they like really they took the reins of it themselves. And what started is, again, me getting a quick message on Facebook led to us having at the time the largest North American tournament for the game. So big, in fact, that we even got a player over from Japan. Sick. You know, and again, also, shout out to Ursic, man. He was a dude who put us over for the 1200 that was necessary. So, dude, thank you for that. And, like, that effort was what helped propel them to combo break. And, like, being able to see that, being able to be a part of it, that's one of my crowning achievements in the FGC. I'm not even going to lie. And it's funny because, like, a majority of, like, the big moments in the FGC that I have have nothing to do with me. They're generally stuff that, like, works or involves people that I've worked with or people that I've worked for. You know, like, case in point, we were kind of, like, just, you know, BSing about it earlier. But we were talking about the website. And Parappa was one of the people who worked on the website with me. And between him, Zidian, somebody else who wrote for us, and ex wild wolf those three are like crown jewels for me probably he's you know he had been there the longest so to speak and he you know he was a little bit curious because he needed to find his footing he needed to find his voice and when he found it this kid knocked it out of the park and not only did he keep knocking out of the park he kept growing he kept expanding and i to this day is what we're talking about before when he released his column, the Pacapa Zone, dude, online, that thing went over like gangbusters because he approached the FGC in that moment that it was having, right between Ultra Street Fighter 4 getting the shaft the way it did and Street Fighter 5 kind of being forced on everybody and all the other games circling the FGC in the chaos that they were, he took this surrealistic snapshot worthy of Rod Sterling himself and he put this on paper and again dude like the response to it was amazing then you turn around and you have you know, Zidian and Zidian he was another example somebody who like kind of had to twist his arm to come on but I wanted him on because I'd seen his writing before he's supremely talented and he finally did and I was watching him grow as a writer. Not just as a writer, but as a person. And I told him, like, Zid, like, you're going to be the one who, like, goes, no, takes it to the house as far as this is concerned. Like, me, like, I, like my time is past. I'm, it's my turn to help other people involve, all right? But you, like, it, this is going to be your meal house, basically. And even when the time came where, like, he parted ways with KPB, he kept writing. And this dude went from writing for Kick Punch Block to being the correspondent at Evo for Yahoo Games. He was actually there. Yeah, exactly. He was actually there covering the Goon Suite that year KOF 14 was at Evo. So it was a weird, like, no, again, we had this, like, weird branching path. And he, like, again, he got there because, again, 
He started with us. He had talent. He needed to realize that. He needed to see it for himself. And he did. We worked. He got somewhere. He found what he needed to do. And he took it further. And he kept going further. And he went from Kick Punch Block to working for, you know, Red Bull and Yahoo Games. Another example is Wild Wolf. Wild Wolf, he was one of our strategist writers. He would do strategy guides to different characters. And he wrote a strategy guide for Shanae, the like new protagonist from KO14, that was so in-depth, so articulate, that Noriyuki himself had the damn thing translated and he shared it around. This is the fucking this is the freaking producer of the game. Awesome. Like seeing this, taking that, and like, no, again, getting it translated and having it spread around in all of his media circles, because again. Rami wrote such a guide for this character, man. And it wasn't the only one that he did. He did, like, at least a good six or seven. And each one was, again, beautifully detailed. Like, you would figure he spent months writing on these things. This did, this kid churned these things out month after month after month. And seeing that reaction from the producer of KOF 14, a dude who I ended up meeting at EVO, and he recognized me because of KPB. He asked me where you no know, AX Wild Wolf was. And unfortunately, Rami wasn't at Evo that year. But he asked me about this kid. And again, like I said again, I told him, I was like, dude, he saw the game. He loved the game. He wanted to write. Seeing that and being witness to that, one of like the biggest moments that I've had in the FGC. And like again, it doesn't even concern me. All the cool stuff that I've been able to do on commentary, it is secondary, damn near tertiary compared to some of the achievements that I've seen people that I've been able to help achieve, man. Now, when it, it's funny that you bring that up. You mentioned Parappa, Sedane, and who's the other guy? Remy? EX Wild. Yeah, well, his real name is Rami, but his you know, tag is EX Wild. You know, one of the things everybody loves about you is how much you're a motivator on the team. You know, you want to see the best for everybody again parappa will say yes you know afro's there for me all the time listen it doesn't work out sometimes it doesn't work out with some people as much as you want to try to help them yeah you know unfortunately some people just don't like listening they don't like listening to good wisdom you know like like where do you get so much wisdom to help these guys out where you could see you know what maybe you want to work on that and this is going to elevate you a little bit more is it something from your upbringing? Again, not many people, you know, especially in this community where unfortunately where we are right now is so toxic. And even outside of all that stuff, you, you hear so many things like, listen, you might want to do this instead of that. Mm -hmm. It's only going to help you out. But what keeps you going to want to motivate people? Do you just want to see the best out of them? Honestly, God, yeah, I do. Like the little bit of generosity and whatnot that like, rage and prime like you know show to me i want to pay that forward and every opportunity i get i'm going to take it even if it like boils down to having somebody get on the mic with me because i will say this up front the idea that me being a commentator having a following is still foreign to me even after all this time it still freaks me out a little bit the fact that like when people tell me how much you love my commentary when people will come up to me at events and like no like come to shake my hand like want to get a picture or something like dude i'm nobody all right like i said i don't even push buttons all right i'm just some dude talking but something about that draws them something about that inspires them 
and it's still something that I get used to, even after all this time. But with that, I don't want to waste that opportunity. I want to help as many people as possible. I want to be able to see people like don't propel. Because, again, like I was saying before, I hit my ceiling a long time ago. I got no illusions about that. There's a certain length. There's a certain distance I was going to go because I got started as late as I did and because I took the avenues I did. And I'm completely fine with that. But I know being on the other side of the curtain, so to speak, where things can go, where people can reach, you know, what heights they can attain. I want to see people do that. Does it bother you with all your experience in this community that some people never listen to you? <sighs> I'll be frank. I'm not going to say that it doesn't bother me because there's a special black hole in my heart for people who complain about situations that they themselves will not do anything to address. But at the same time, it gets to the point every now and again, not very often, like we're talking like blue moon situation here, where I'll tell somebody to do A, B, and C. And I know for a fact A, B, and C works, but they'll want to do their own thing. And everybody's entitled to that fact. But this is a piece of age-old wisdom, and if I'm showing my age, so the hell be it. But the old saying is, only person who can tell you where you're going is somebody who knows where you've been. And because I have hit the ground running, because I have put so much goddamn mileage on these bones of mine, I've been a lot of different places. I've been there. I've done that. And in a couple instances, I took pictures that I had to delete later on. But still careful yeah again hindsight's 2020 but nonetheless you know i know where things can work i know what certain things can like know what's necessary to get to a certain level and if i can see somebody working towards that level who might be a little bit led astray i'm going to do everything in my power to do what was done for me because like, you guys saw this. My big thing when I was, like, commentating before, I did it simply because, again, we needed a commentator, and it helps to have a steady voice in every production, something that people can familiarize themselves with. It wasn't until KOF 14, like, really got its big announcement, like, particularly the Geese and Rio trailer. That was what sold me on the game. And I remember what I said probably, like, 10 minutes after that, after a debut, and I said, I don't care when it gets played. I don't care what stream it's on. I don't even care what day it gets broadcasted. I want to call the action for KOF 14 at every event I can. So I started putting boots to the ground for every event, KOF related or not. I went there, defend the North, every biggie event I could. Any locals, New York and Philadelphia for that matter. Hell, we even started a local in Jersey that I wanted people to come to, which brings up the Skullgirls crew again. You know, anything that I could, I wanted to be there. And that's part of the reason why, again, my buying fighting games comes into play. Because if I'm going to do a game, if I'm going to be on the mic, I'd like to know what the hell I'm talking about. And I have seen far too many examples of people who don't know dick about games on the mic, and it pisses me off to no end. 
there are some examples where it's physically painful to listen to them. Uh, I remember one instance where somebody was on a game. I'm not going to say who it was because, A, I don't know their tags or their names. I just know the event that it happened with, so I'm going to let that be. But they got on the mic, and I could clearly hear that they hated the game they were commentating. And it just turned me off. I couldn't even sit back and watch the rest of the stream. Mind you, I love the game that they were talking about. But because I can hear the disdain in their voice, I couldn't get into it. And when I hear stuff like that and when I see stuff like that flying, it again, it gets under my skin. Why is that allowed? <sighs> Mainly because, again, it's levels of nepotism, cronyism, like clicks and all that stuff. Like some people just generally lazy where, again, like I say, like you'll have an event. Somebody puts up a stream. Streamer doesn't know what's really going on, doesn't know like who's involved, what needs to go into it. They say like, yo, who plays this game? Like, and who's playing? No, who plays this game but isn't in bracket right now? And they say, all right, come on, get on the mic and everything. And some people, and you know this better than I do, some people just straight up lie about that. You know, they'll do it just because they want to be on the mic. All it's right? a, it's a, pardon the language, but it's a weird hard on. Yeah. Some people. Like I said again, like case in point. You remember, like again, I forget which even it was, but it was during. You know, it was MK, it was during the MK, what? Was it like an MK2 or an MK9 event? Probably 9. And again, Shock was the one, no, doing it. He was running everything. But whatever reason, the internet in the building had gone. It was injustice. It was injustice. Okay. For whatever reason, the internet in the building just like, it gave up on all of us. So Shock was recording all of the matches. Nobody wanted to get on the mic. Why? Because they weren't going to be seen. Because it wasn't going out live. That's a level of vanity that, honestly, God, it's disgusting to me. And whenever I see it, again, I do my best to counteract that. If you're aiming to be involved in this, particularly when it comes to commentary work, if you're aiming to be involved in this, you have to do it, period. You can't do it when the spotlight's on you. You can't do it when it's only a big game. You can't do it when... no. Uh, Oh, it's going to be on this stream or on that stream. No, if you want to be a commentator, you got to be in this, period. You can't, like, you know, try and take some shortcuts or anything. Because don't get me wrong. I know for a fact that a lot of people have, you know, gotten that nepotism boost because they knew this one or that one or they just happened to be involved with the right click at the right time. Bully for you, all right? But if you want to be a real commentator, you know, get your weight up. Earn those stripes, all right? Do the work. Put the, you no, know, get in the legwork. Walk the miles, basically. Don't just sit there and, like, you know, again, because you know somebody, because you happen to be in the vicinity at the time, don't just get on the mic because, you know, oh, you like the game or anything. I've seen examples of that. We all have. And, again, like I said, it's immediately – it turns you off from it. It just makes it blasé to me. Through all your hard work, you've been able to go out to Evo as being part of the KOF commentary team, I believe. Yes, sir. KOF for one year and Sam Show for another. Regardless, you know, you made it to Evo, which is great achievement. Thank you. I'm sure. I'm sure there was some sort of was there any resentment from anybody in this area? Well, why does he get to go? Did they not understand if there was some resentment? Do they not understand it was hard work that got you out there? It wasn't any resentment, but there was some belittlement over it because like, I put my, no, I put all my eggs in the SNK basket, basically. Now, mind you, that's not to say that I can't commentate other games. I can commentate everything 
with the exception of NRS and Smash, primarily because, again, I like fighting games. It's one of my major hobbies. So I go out of my way to make sure that, again, if I'm going to be involved in this, I want to know what the hell I'm talking about. So I do the work. I do the you know, studying and whatnot. I go through the streams. I try to like you know learn as much as possible. You know, hell, I remember when we were doing the Killer Instinct stuff now at the Mixer Studio. Now at the time when I found out about it, didn't really know much about Killer Instinct. Hell, I wasn't even a huge fan of the game when it got announced. But when that opportunity presented itself, you know what I did leading up to that weekend? Every day. While I was at work, in between breaks, I was watching tech videos. When I got home, I would be up to 2 in the morning sometimes, watching streams, trying to learn as much as I could about it. Hell, even the day of the event, I was still taking cliff notes about it in terms of what everybody's instinct did and how they counteracted it. Hell, one of my biggest moments at the Mixer Studio was, it was, uh, who was it again? If it was Regal Suave going up against Bass, wasn't it? Again. And there was this one key moment where Rico picked Gargos, Bass picked Spinal. He always picks Spinal. And suddenly, while the two of them are like, you no, know, going into it, I had another one of those Kobayashi moments. Suddenly it dawned on me why this matchup worked in Bass's favor, despite all the tools that Gargos has. Bass's instinct cancels out, meter gain. An instinct gain, which are two things that Gargos needs if he wants to be super effective. Bass knew that. That's why he played Spinal so well. Rico most likely knew that, but it wasn't a big thing that popped up because he was just steamrolling everybody. And I'm pretty sure a bunch of people watching at home knew that. But it clicked for me while I was on the mic. And because of that, again, I felt so validated. Because, again, that was basically 168 hours worth of sleepless nights, constantly going over notes, watching vids of people who have terrible production, just doing the work and everything finally having that like you know, moment where it's like that moment from the Lego movie where Emmett realizes he is a master builder and all the numbers start showing up. That's what it was like for me. And again, it was an enlightening moment and it helped everybody else because a the players when they go back they can come back to it and they can use that to help their game everybody who wasn't on stream at the moment who was listening with an earshot thanks to the pa system suddenly they realized something that they may not have known everybody that was listening at home majority of them probably already knew that there was a bunch of them that most likely didn't because, again, there's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of, like, just raw information given to you in every fighting game. If you want to be a commentator, if you want to be a good commentator, it is your job to be able to parse through all of it and to be able to digest it and present it in a way that is digestible to your audience. So when it came to the idea, to come back to your original question, when it came to the idea, like, was there any resentment? No, there wasn't really much resentment because, again, right. I put in that work, and thankfully, everybody saw it. At the least the people making the decisions. Right. I'll come back to that in a second. The only thing that popped up was a little bit of resentment here and there. Because there would be people who saw that I was going to Evo and Combo Breaker and Final Round, Press and Case stuff. 
or rather for KOF, but they were also people who were there who were also commentators that were trying to be coming up, and they didn't understand why I was chosen for it. And I didn't get, like, subtweeted or anything like that, but I was made aware of a general sentiment where, well, I don't see why he's going to all these events. He's just an SNK announcer. I heard that more times than I care to admit. And I ain't going to lie, It in the beginning, it did hurt. Because, you know, like you said, I put in as much work as possible. And it's not like me trying to toot my own horn and everything. All the work that I did, all the work that I put in, I did it for the community. Because I say this a thousand times, and I will say it a thousand times more. The CNFGC means something to us here at Kick Punch Block, and it always will. And it means something really important to me because this community gave me the opportunity to do something that I loved. So when I did it bother you because you know the C in the community is like oh supposed to be a team and then you hear that and it's like really pretty much yeah and at the same time it felt weird because like what does me liking SNK have to do with anything like I'm commentating a game because I want people to be able to enjoy the game at the same level I do and at the time there was still this like really dumb stigma. That if it wasn't Capcom, it wasn't worth it. And that's something I've never been in. I've never subscribed to that train of thought. Every fighting game has something to offer. Every fighting game has something to teach you. So for the few people out there to, like, just, again, throw that comment around. All right, I get it. But, like, guys, it's not helping anybody. All right? Like I said, I got to do the stuff that I was able to do because I put in the work. Because I want to see people excel. Because I want communities and subsections, like you no know, neighborhoods of the community and whatnot. I want to see them get their doing proper. That's why I put so much effort into Skullgirls. That's why I poured so many hours into learning Killer Instinct. That's why I dove headfirst into pushing myself for KOF. And it ain't because of some vanity. Trust me, I have the most, like, the most withered ego you could hope to find on another human being. It's not to say that I like completely throw self-preservation to the wayside, but again, I'm always going to put somebody else in front of myself. It's a detriment, I'm not going to lie, in the big picture of things, but when it comes to the FGC, again, I want to see the communities. I want to see the people who really deserve attention get the attention they deserve. You know, you started off here in Westchester. Like we said, you moved all over the place. You joined KPV. <coughs> Excuse me. You started moving around. You've been to two different coasts. You've been to the middle of the country. I'm sure you've been to Canada Cup or any Canada event, right? Actually, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? Have you been to any international events? Uh, No, game? to be frank. Okay, so you basically walked around the entire U.S. You've seen some of the biggest uh, scenes within the community. What is wrong with the community? Like, like what, what needs to be fixed? First and foremost... And I know I'm going to step on a lot of toes saying this. Tough titty. First and foremost, yeah. First and foremost, the main thing that needs to be nixed in the community as a whole is the sense of entitlement. I understand that there are going to be a lot of people who are good at one particular type of game. Doesn't make you a better person than anybody else. Doesn't warrant 
you getting any type of special treatment over anybody else. There's a very noticeable double standard when it comes to how certain things are handled in the FGC. That needs to go the way of the dinosaur. Everybody who picks up the sticks, until the score is adjusted, we're all on equal ground. Until somebody is eliminated from a tournament, y'all are all equals. Period. Nobody is higher up than anybody else. If you're in the rankings for a professional, no, if you're in a professional ranking or something, if you're on a leaderboard, bully for you. It's points, it's numbers. You're not a better person. You may be a better player and more power to you for that, but you're not a better person than somebody else just because you went to you no know, top eight and they went 0 2. Y'all push buttons, and too many people forget that. That's like, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves about the FGC. Is esports bad for the FGC? The perception of esports is bad. The application of esports might actually help us if we got out of our own way. You know, there's opportunity when it comes to esports. There is a level of exposure that comes with esports. But because so many of us and a lot of the a lot of these people know who they are because so many of us want to really like cling on to that like ghetto mentality that arcade mentality for lack of any other way of saying it because so many of us want to cling on to that like it's literally the the last life preserver on the titanic y'all people are the ones that are causing us to sink all right because in all honesty like arcade mentality the way that people are trying to portray it nowadays has got my ass kicked three different times. And I wasn't even the one who did the thing wrong. You know, first time was when, like, you know, Rival Schools was out. And I was playing on New Main Street. And again, like I said, this is where I was in that point in my life where I learned, I was learning how to play games. So I'm there. I'm just going through it, trying to get, like, with a little bit of practice I can get on an arcade run. Bunch of kids come in. They start dropping quarters in. I got next. I ran through all of them. Like I said, it wasn't even a breaking sweat type of deal. Like, again, each and every one that put their money on the machine, they got got knocked off. And I didn't think anything of it. They did. So after everybody got their ass whipped two, three times, next thing I know, place floods out. And while I'm just going back to my regular, I got a no soda bottle thrown at my head. And naturally, I figure, all right, like, I want to know what the hell is going on. Second I get outside, I got a dozen people beating the shit out of me. I get jumped because I beat everybody else. Years later, I would come to find out from one of the people who, they didn't realize who I was, so they were just talking about it. I come to find out that, oh, they went back and they told everybody that I was like, you no, know, winning, but also stealing money from people. Like, again, like that doesn't help. All right. Like, all I did was play my game. It was nice that I won. It was cool. You know, it gave me a little bit of a boost in my confidence, but it didn't boost my ego any. No, another time I'm working in Nathan's. This is when Tekken 4 was out. I'm in there. And there's this kid that I see. He's playing his game. And he knows what he's doing. He's at that same point I was a couple of years back. 
He's playing his game. Gets a couple of wins in the arcade, bro. A little while into it, this big goon that I know from the neighborhood. And I, there's no other way to describe it. This big goon-looking dude that I know from the neighborhood. He comes in. Him and his cronies around him on either side. He goes to play Tekken 4. Kid goes up against him. Kid mops the floor with him. This guy goes for, like, I think at least a good $3. The game only costs 25 cents at that point. It gets to the point where, again, like, he's heated. He's embarrassed because some little kid happened to be him. Little kid knew what he was doing. Big guy didn't. So he starts to press up on him. Now, mind you, this is on a weekday. So the security isn't there. So I see this. I don't want anything bad to happen to this little kid. He's just trying to play a game. I've been in that situation. So I go there. I try and stop this. I separate them. Little kid goes about his business. Goon and his cronies, they go outside. I don't think anything of this. I clock out. They're waiting for me outside. I go in there. I'm trying to, like, talk my way out of this because, again, I don't need to get into a fight on my, no day, no, leading into my day off. Doesn't happen. I try to, again, be the cooler head to prevail. I end up getting tackled into the brick wall next to the drive-thru. Now, coincidentally, because they were playing Tekken, one of my favorite Tekken characters happens to be Bruce Irvin. And when he tackles me, he left the back of his neck open. So what do I do? Elbow him down. I thought you were going to tell me one of them tried to do a Tekken move on you. No, no, no. no. (laughs) I said I elbowed him down on one arm. I elbowed him down with the arm. Kneed him in the chest with my nose. Got him with a knee in the chest. Old, old tie pinch. I believe it was like, no, that's Bruce's back four. He goes down. He drops. Wind's knocked out of him, basically. Other buddies are there. They see that. And since, you know, he's like, no, the big leader and everything. It's like what, no, Bullet Tooth said. No, it's going to precipitate your friends from shrinking along with their presence. They scatter off. Now, me, I ended up getting a herniated disc because I got thrown into a brick wall. So that sucks for me. But that's that arcade mentality that everybody says they want to stick around. Well, you know, you say that, but unfortunately, well, fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, Uh look at something like Battle of the Strongest. Everybody says, oh, we love it because that's hardcore, um, you know, ghetto, arcade, whatever word you want to use. And that's one of the selling points. So what do you say to that? Because they usually get like 5,000 people watching. As silly as it is, you know, and I love those guys. I love J360, you know, but people love watching them curse, acting ghetto, acting stupid. What do you say to that? Time and place. That's all. I'm not saying that again. It can't exist. But you have to understand that if we want all of this to get to that quote-unquote next level, pun fully intended, we got to clean up, all right? We got to stop acting like, no, we're doing all this stuff in, like, you know, our friend's basement on a Saturday night. We got to, like, you know, present ourselves. Try and be a little bit professional. You know, try to, like, again, create and present a product that the quote-unquote uninitiated want to give a crap about. I know there are a bunch of us in the you know, FGC who love teasing people who get pissed off when, like, Evo gets broadcast on you no know, TV, whether it's on ESPN or Disney XD, whatever. I know 
there are a bunch of people who like love reading the comments, love so you no know, looking at the tweets and everything about how people are all bent out of shape. That again, like oh, Smash was put on instead of whatever I was watching, or oh, why is Street Fighter on ESPN? And look, it's cute, but you gotta understand something. All those people who are pissed off that our game is on their channel, we still need their attention. All right, we still need their advertising dollars. It's a bitter pill that a lot of people need to grow the hell up and swallow, but that doesn't change the fact that they need to take their medicine. Do at this point, do both camps just have to be separated? I mean, MLG tried to do that, and there was such a big blowback. Oh, well, you're taking over, you know, grassroots events, and you're taking over our time. Is something like that feasible, or is just something that? I mean, especially now with the COVID situation, it's by all means, like we all said, it's a hardcore reset. Mm -hmm. You know, how would you go about it? We got to find the middle ground. And I know that there are going to be different groups and factions within the FGC that are going to patently resist the idea. But the fact of the matter is that if we want to recover from the hellscape that 2020 has been thus far and will likely continue to be, we have to realize that there's a reason why other games that accept the concept of esports excel the way that they do. But we also have to remember what sets us apart from that. And we have to work as hard as necessary to marry those two concepts. Because when we do, then we're going to see that, like, you no, know, this promised land that everybody thought that Street Fighter 4 and Street Fighter 5 was supposed to bring us, all right? Again, I still... Like, I roll my eyes to the point of actually getting a headache when I think of all the different times that, you know, a pro circuit or a event tour was announced for a game. And everybody's under the idea that, okay, because of this announcement, oh, that's where the money is going to be. So everybody goes out and buys this game. And then three days later, after that first initial weekend, they drop the game. And then suddenly, oh, that game is dead, all right? As bitter of a pill, as much as I am aligned to bring it up, I come back to the whole debacle that was the first steps of Marvel's Capcom Infinite. There were so many things done laughably wrong in the beginning of that game. And it isn't the game's fault. Game plays well. It may not have been pretty, but the game plays exceptionally well. But between the promotion of how that game was again like displayed to the world, we all saw the Chun-Li picture. We all saw the Dante memes. Between the joke that was the collector's edition, and it was a joke, all right? I believe it was Neil Young who said, oh, my, my, hey, hey. You know, you pay for this, but they give you that utterly ridiculous and that whole circuit that they had for it the battle for the stones where everybody had to these different events and everybody could get an infinity stone from the event so ass backwards ridiculous instead of just again saying that all right we have a release date and we have a you know tournament date and we should work to fill in point A to point B with different level of events. 
maybe not as intricate and widespread as what the Tekken World Tour does, but something along the lines of Capcom Pro Cup. No, the Cap Cup. And again, you simply work from there. Don't just dump the game out. Assume that you're going to get somewhere because of the name and because of your pedigree or legacy from the previous installment of the game and automatically assume that's going to give you an in on whatever the hell could be coming from the next game. Because we saw all that again. Again, the name was brought up in the bag section that you guys did not too long ago. All right. Everything that happened with that particular, you know, personality, I'll say. Everything that went on with him, everything that was proven, everything that eventually came to light, all the, like, you know, quote-unquote leaks, and then the photos that we see after the fact that pointed directly to them. That, again, cut me a break, all right? If you want your game to succeed, and I'm talking on a, you know, executive level and also on a community level, honest to God, stop acting like you're two different entities, okay? Left hand, right hand, link up, work together. I wouldn't think this, that it would be that hard, but lo and behold, those two companies have proven me wrong. <laughs> Listen, man, the FGC is a very tiring, you know, uh, you know, marathon, I guess. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, you've talked to me plenty of times. You've gotten headaches. You sometimes want to just ram people through the door. Uh, uh-huh. Excuse me, through a wall for taking your beer or something like that, or maybe a chicken wing. I mean, how, how much longer do you think you're going to be doing this for? <sighs> Considering how much you do. Here's you know? the deal. And... I have to preface this with a little bit of information that most people in the FGC don't know about me. But an immediate answer to your question, I'm going to do this for as long as I can. However, the fact of the matter is, I know that as long as I can actually isn't a whole hell of a lot longer. Everybody always jokes around that I got stories. I got war stories, entertaining or bewildering. So I got to tell one right now. Something that, again, like I said earlier, a lot of people don't know about me is that, again, I have what's known as acute bradycardia. In layman's terms, that means that I have a slow heart. To put it in a percentage case, my heart beats at roughly 50% of a normal heart. It's part of the reason why I'm so laid back. It's part of the reason why it's so difficult to wake me up when I'm asleep because functionally I'm comatose. So because of that, that has shaved off a little bit of my life expectancy. So I don't have a whole hell of a lot of time left. So because of that knowledge, you know, that very, very ugly lesson that I got to learn on my 19th birthday where... I just simply had a falling out, so to speak. You know, it's basically like, you know, the SpongeBob meme that you see there. I'm walking away from somewhere and my heart just said, you know what? Everything's been cool. I'm going to head out right quick. You handle the rest of this. Next thing you know, I'm getting woken up by a bunch of people screaming at me, trying to like, you know, wake me back up and all that stuff. And naturally, everybody's worried. Go to the hospital, do all the tests, yada, yada, yada. Spend a week in the hospital, another week after that on bed rest, hooked up to a heart monitor. 
And again, I get that news. And it's a very, very tough lesson to learn when you're 19 years old, where you're supposed to be at like that height of that like real foolish, you know, stupid sense of invincibility that teenagers are supposed to have. And you get a crash course in learning that, hey, you're going to die. And I got to deal with that pretty much alone for two weeks. So from then on out, I kind of realized, okay, however much longer I'm going to do this, I got to do it the way I want. And because of that, that is what has inspired me to do so much. It's part of the reason why outside of everything that I've done in and for the FGC, it's part of the reason why I've traveled the country before being involved with commentary. It's part of the reason why I have you know, helped as many people as possible to the fullest extent of my abilities, many times at my own detriment. But it's not like in the grand scheme of things, that don't matter. It's part of the reason why I you know traveled abroad and lived in Europe for a couple of years because I needed to do something for me. It's part of the reason why I you know went out of my way and I took the time to become self, uh, self-published author. No. I know that I don't have, you know, forever. I learned that when I was really, really young, unfortunately. So whatever I do and whatever I love to do, I'm going to keep doing until I can't do it no more. Somber, I admit, and probably not the most jovial story I have in my repertoire, but it is the truth and it's just what it is. It's one of my defining characteristics. I've heard that from you. But anyway, <laughs> Mike, guys, that will be, let's finish it off on that note. Yeah. Now, this has been another fun episode of KPB Cast. Where could people reach you? What are your social media outlets? Okay. I am Afrodynamic in all things that I do. So if you want to get in contact with me personally, again, on Facebook and Twitter, you can find me at Afrodynamic. And because I handle the you know Facebook page for Kick Punch Block, all you got to do is, again, go to Facebook.com slash Block. And generally, everything you see there that has my name on it, obviously, I'm behind. So, yeah, you can contact me that way. And, uh, yeah, like, I have to ask this. Uh, chances are we're probably going to be doing this again later on, either where it's you as the host or Rodimus Prime. Be that as it may, if you don't mind, may I do my sign-out? Yeah, sure, go ahead. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, like this is that time once again. And I appreciate that. Look, there are a thousand one places that you could be at any given one time when you're online and you decided to spend some time with us. So this is the one, the only, the voice of KPB Afrodynamic. I'm going to be signing out. And as always, brothers and sisters, keep fighting the good fight. I'll see y'all next time. And guys, with that, that's another great episode of KPB. Follow us at YouTube, KPB FGC. I'm KPB Raphael. That's KPB Afrodynamic. Have yourselves a great evening. Thanks, man. That was a lot of fun. This has been a KPB MediaWorks production. This has been a KPB MediaWorks production.